I want to welcome you to worship, not just in this room, but in Loudoun and Montgomery County, Prince William, as well as those of you who are online and unable to join with us in person. We invite you to join us in person as soon as you're physically able. It is so good to see this room and other rooms at other locations filling up and even watching right now the offering is being passed at Tyson's for the first time in over a year. So uh, yes, let's give God glory for the opportunity to give in this way and that's happening in different ways at different locations now and you can obviously still give online but it just prompts me to praise God and to thank you. And we've been through a lot together over the last year, yet through it all, you have given faithfully to the point where we've been able to thrive financially while giving away millions of dollars more than we had planned to people in need amidst outreach in a pandemic. Like that is a testimony to God's grace in this church family. So, all glory be to him. Thanks to you. Continue to give. If you've been disconnected, I encourage you to re-engage in giving, knowing that the more we give, the more ministry we're able to do together in this city and around the world. Now, I normally start by saying, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, you can look on with, let me invite you open to, but before I say that today, I guess I kind of just said it, <laughs> pretend like I didn't, I want to step back and ask a question. Why does it matter if you have a Bible? And not just in this gathering. Why does it matter if you have a Bible at all? Why should you care what this book says? I mean, think about it. This is a pretty interesting concept, isn't it? That thousands of us would gather today in this room at other locations and online with one book, that we would open it up together and we would spend an inordinate amount of time that we have together reading it and studying it and then say that our lives should revolve around whatever it says, no matter what it says. Now that may not seem strange to you, but it sure seems strange to a lot of people in the world. I would say it seems strange to an ever-increasing number of people in our culture. I think about one woman who was visiting a group. They sat down together and somebody said, let's turn to the book of John. And she immediately asked, who is John and why do I care what he says? I think that's a pretty good question. And I know there are people who come every single week to this church who are asking the same question. Maybe this is your first time in a church or you're exploring Christianity, one of the things I love about NBC is every week we gather together, there are people like this here. So if that's you, we want you to know you are not alone. Or there are others who have grown up in church. I grew up in church, and I remember getting to the point when I started asking the same questions, like how do I know this book is true? And why should I listen to what it says? I think about teenagers across this gathering right now who may be asking the same questions. You're sitting there thinking, I'm here because my mom or dad or whoever else brought me, but if I were completely honest, I don't completely get it. Like, what does this book have to do with my life and what I'm walking through right now? And why do I care what it says? And I know this, one, because I've talked with you, and two, because I've seen the data. So let me show you a graph on the screen here that depicts people's view of the Bible by generation. So this is based on a six-year study that the Barna Group did with the American Bible Society to gauge Americans' views of the Bible. And they asked, how many of you believe the Bible is sufficient for meaningful living? So I'll put that up here on the screen. How many of you would say, I believe the Bible is sufficient for meaningful living? And among those they classified as elders, which they classified as people born prior to 1946, they found that 65% said, yes, we believe the Bible is sufficient for meaningful living in America. Then they surveyed what they called boomers, the next generation, and 
56% of them said they believed that. So still a majority. But then, among those classified as Gen Xers, only 40% said they believed this. And then, among millennials, so this was the youngest group they surveyed, they classified millennials as those born between 1984 and 2002, so anywhere between 18 and 34 years old at this point. You know how many of them said the Bible is sufficient for meaningful living? 27%. Does that trend line tell you anything? And to be clear, we haven't even gotten to the current group of children and teenagers. That trend line makes me wonder how many of our children will believe the Bible is sufficient for their lives. So I guess my point is, when I say, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, regardless of who you are, whether you're new to church, whether you've grown up in church, I know many of you are wondering why it matters. And I want you to know why it matters. I want you to know why you need this book. Why if you don't have one, we will give you one today. Just let us know. And not just to have it, but to hunger for it. Like ready to open this book. I long for children, teenagers, to come into this gathering thinking, I wanna open this book. I want to know it. I want to understand what it says. And I want my life to revolve around it. And I, I want people who've never opened this book to open it for the first time in here and see there's nothing like this book. Because there's not. There's not. There's no other book like this book. This book is the word of God. And I know, for some of you, that sounds like a really bold statement, but I make it without reservation because, well, I have no interest in gathering with a bunch of people, reading a book together, and saying, you and I need to revolve our lives around what this book says if that book is not the Word of God. I've got better things to do with my life. This is just one among many similar books. And you've got better things to do with your Sundays than to come to a gathering and read, study this book if it's not the Word of God. Or just join a book club some other time in the week. Don't get up, bring your whole family together, serve in kids' ministry teaching this book. Like go to the ball field. Go on a hike or something. It's a beautiful day outside. Let some cicadas crawl all over you. <laughs> get some extra done, work done. Do something else. But if this book is the word of God, then put aside all those things and prioritize getting together to study this book. Prioritize serving in kids' ministry so they know this book, so that trend line changes. But how do we know this book is the word of God? And what makes it unique, apart from any or other, any other of a number of religious books in the history of the world? So here's seven quick reasons we know this book is God's word. And you might be wondering why we're spending so much time in here, where this is going. Trust me, this is going somewhere really important. But I would encourage you to write these down. One, for your own knowledge. And two, so that you can share with others why you know this book is the word of God. Like if someone were to ask you right now, why do you revolve your life around this book? What would you say? Maybe you say, because it's God's word. And someone might then ask you, well, how do you know that? What makes the Bible different from the Quran, from the Vedas and Hinduism, or any other religious or philosophical writings in the world? Every Christian should be able to say, here's why I bank my life on this book. And here's why you should too. One, because of its internal consistency. So we're gonna hit these pretty quick, but just follow along. The Bible contains 66 books written by over 40 different authors in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years. And they all together paint a clear picture of one story that revolves around the one true God creating men and women, us sinning against God, and God making a way of restoration for all things by his grace through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The whole book, over 1,500 years, paints a consistent, clear picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years. Like if I took 40 of you right now, asked you to write down your views on God, what's wrong in the world, and how it can be made right, there is no way I could get you to agree. This last year has proven that. And that's at the same time in history with the same language. These were 40 different authors in all kinds of different periods in history from different languages and simple, like a few well-educated others, simple. Farmers, shepherds, soldiers, fishermen. So just by way of comparison, and I say this with all due respect to anyone with a Muslim background, but just think about the Quran in Islam. And these are just facts, not even commentary on how the Bible and the Quran compare, just plain facts. The Quran was written not by 40 authors in three languages over 1,500 years, but by one man, Muhammad, when he had a vision during one year. He was illiterate, so he dictated revelations from his vision to his followers. Then after he died, those recitations were written down. There were discrepancies in different accounts of what Muhammad taught, so one particular person collated them, he alone determined what was authentic, and then he burned the rest. One man in one year with discrepancies that another man decided to clean up and burn the differences. With all due respect, there is no comparison with this book. And, and one of Islam's most prevalent criticisms of the Bible is that it's been changed. But that's the second reason we know this is the Word of God, because of manuscript reliability. We based our knowledge of world history on writings where we have a handful of manuscripts, sometimes a hundred or so. But we have over 5,000 full or partial manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. And more manuscripts are found every year, none of which has ever resulted in a major revision just a relative few and extremely minor variations, making the Bible by far the most reliably attested writing in human history. And it's filled with history. That's number three, historical accuracy. Again, books like the Quran are not a history like the Old and New Testaments of the Bible are, covering 1,500 years. And over and over and over again, the Bible has been proven historically, geographically, and archaeologically accurate. One non-Christian, non-Jewish archaeologist said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference, ever. And the Bible has predicted history. That's reason number four, fulfilled prophecy. The Bible contains thousands of prophecies fulfilled with uncanny precision, including 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament written over hundreds of years that are fulfilled in detail in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The odds of that happening by chance are less than one in 2,000 zeros. In the words of R.C. Sproul, the very dimension of the sheer fulfillment of prophecy of the Old Testament scriptures should be enough to convince anyone that we're dealing with a supernatural piece of literature. And it's not just that things were made up to try to confirm what had been prophesied. The Bible is a book of, number five, eyewitness testimony. In other words, people were writing down what they saw, what actually happened, in a way that others could have similarly written down at the time. That wasn't true. And keep in mind, those who were writing the Bible were often persecuted or martyred for what they were writing, but they wrote it anyway. Pascal once said, I believe the witnesses who get their throats cut for what they're writing. All of this leads, number six, to the Bible's timeless authority. I want to be careful by even using worldly categories to judge the Bible when the reality is century after century after century, the Bible has shown itself to be our judge. While its authority has been attacked, questioned, criticized, disputed, and denied in every age by different people, it remains. The famous French philosopher and atheist Voltaire once claimed, a hundred years from now, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Yet after he died, in a twist of irony, the house where Voltaire lived became a printing press for the distribution of Bibles across the world. 
People have forgotten Voltaire, but not the Bible. Because the Bible, so this is reason number seven, and it's the most important. This supernatural book, written by 40 authors, carried along, inspired by the Holy Spirit over the course of 1,500 years, contains supernatural authenticity. And by that I mean that throughout history, in every age and place where this book has gone, it has supernaturally changed lives. In every century and every setting where it has spread, this book has shown itself inspired by God himself to transform people, to bring peace and joy and eternal life to those who open it and read it and bank their lives on it. I I look across this room, I see story after story after story. I see baptisms happening at locations where we're gathered today of people whose lives have been supernaturally changed and transformed for all of eternity by this book. Even speaking of teenagers, I see six people being baptized out at Prince William today, five of whom are teenagers whose lives have been supernaturally transformed by the author of this book. This this is why we talk a lot around here about giving our lives and our resources to get this book everywhere in the world, particularly among people who don't have access to it. And this, this is why we come together every week and we say, if you have this book, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, because whether you're a teenager or a senior adult, whether this is your first time in church or you've grown up in church, whether you're from Africa or Asia, Europe, South America, North America, this book is necessary for your life. Yet, yet, now follow with me. What I'm about to say is so important. Despite the consistency, reliability, accuracy, testimony, authority, and authenticity of the Bible throughout history. We live in a day the, the pride of what I'm about to say. We live in a day and a culture in this country where so many people not only question all these things about the Bible, but take things a step further to say that the Bible is offensive even dangerous. And the Bible is outdated, and it's time for us to move on from it. And that same research I said earlier about Americans' views of the Bible, among millennials, again, the youngest group they surveyed, over a quarter of millennials described the Bible with this phrase as a dangerous book of religious dogma. And they were asked if the Bible has too much or too little influence in society. And more people said the Bible has too much influence in our culture than too little. In other words, more millennials are concerned that the Bible is having too much influence in our culture today. After all, it is outdated and offensive for a book to say that you are born either male or female and that your gender is a good, God-designed, beautiful, wonderful, fundamental part of who you are. It's outdated and offensive for a book to say that a woman who has feelings for another woman or a man who has feelings for another man should not express love for one another in marriage. It's outdated and offensive for a book to say that the sexually immoral, the greedy, the drunkard will not go to heaven. All of these things we saw and read a couple of series ago in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 on sexuality and singleness and marriage. And I trust we realize we live in a culture that increasingly would say it's dangerous for people to gather together and open this book and read it. And maybe if you do that, don't apply it to your life. Whether it's in Loudoun County this last week or scores of examples across our country in recent years and likely increasing examples in the days to come, we live in a culture that says your job, your reputation, and your relationships will at some point be in jeopardy if you live according to this book. 
And when that happens, I want you to have confidence that this book is worth it. Not just, not just is this book worth getting up on Sundays and coming together to open and read and study it. Like, yes, of course that. Not just is this book worth spending time every morning, every evening of your life alone and with others reading and studying it. Like, yes, of course that. The question, though, is deeper. Is this book worth giving your life for? Is this book worth losing anything, maybe everything you have for? And I want you to be able to say from the depth of your being, absolutely it is. Like I trust this book and I will bank my life on it. And together, we together trust this book. As the church, we come together around the Bible. This has been tested in so many ways over this last year. But we've said over and over and over again what this church has said throughout our history. We unite around the Bible. We're a Bible church. We are not a this church or that church. We're not defined by a denomination or an affiliation. We're defined by a foundation, the Bible. We love the Word of God. And we bank our lives individually and together on it no matter what that means for us in this world. So, that's why I say if you have a Bible, and I hope you do. And that's the reason I spent all this time even getting to this point before we open the Bible today, because we are about to open the Bible to a passage that not just people in our culture, but many in the church would label as offensive and outdated because of what it says about men and women. And I want to be clear, I want it to be clear in your heart and mind when we open to this place in the Bible that this book is not offensive and it is not outdated. Well, actually, let me, let me rephrase that. Uh, this book actually is offensive but not in the ways that you or our culture might think. So the way I would maybe rephrase this is, this book, the Bible is rightly offensive, or offensive in a good way. I wrote, I wrote a, a book a few years back called Counterculture to, as best as I know how, biblically address pressing issues in our culture, like sexuality, marriage, abortion, racism, refugees, religious liberty, and others. And I, I started that book by saying that when people today think about the offense of the Bible, they immediately think about the Bible's views on issues like this, sexuality, marriage, so many other issues. But we need to realize that the Bible's offense begins far before those issues. Like those issues are nowhere near the greatest offense in the Bible. Nowhere close. The Bible's offense begins with its very first words. Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God. I am convinced that is the most offensive verse in this entire book because it announces from the start that there is a God who is the author of all things, which means he alone possesses authority over all things, including you and me. God alone possesses the right to say how you and I should live. And every one of us will give an account to him for how we respond to what he has said. The authority of God, not just in the world, but in your life and my life, booms across the first sentence of the Bible in a way that offends pride in every single one of us. Because the Bible announces from the beginning that we don't determine what is true. God does. We don't determine what is right and good. God does. And your life, and my life, for eternity hinges on whether we trust what he says or what we think. So yes, in a sense, the Bible is offensive. 
but it's offensive in a really good way, in the best way possible. Think about it, put it together. Our creator, the one who made us and knows what is best for us, the author of life, knows how you and I can experience life to the full. He's given us his word so that we might leave behind our thoughts that lead to death and trust his word that leads to life. That's why we need the offense of this book every week when we gather together. Every day we live in this world, we need the good offense of the word of the God who loves us so much and wants you and me to experience life to the full forever. So yes, in a sense, this book is offensive in really good ways. But the Bible is not outdated. The Bible is timeless. But this is where we come to the challenge of a passage like we're about to read. So, finally, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, I invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to to find 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And yes, I know what you are thinking. I see the thought bubbles around this room. I see the thought bubbles at other locations right now. You are thinking, I'm looking at my watch and we just now opened the Bible. So will lunch be happening today? So let me relieve your rising anxiety by saying that this is part one of a two-part message on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses two through 16. And we're basically setting the stage today for next week, which I think you may be even more intrigued to come back next week after reading the passage before us. So let me read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 16, called by one Bible commentator whom I greatly respect, one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the entire Bible. So here we go. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And before I say anything else, let's pause and pray in light of what we've talked about in this book. Let's pray. Oh God, with our Bibles open before us, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for not leaving us alone in this confused and broken world to try to figure things out on our own. We thank you for loving us enough to give us your word, even though our minds and hearts are prone to doubt it and rebel against it. We confess together that we are prone to foolishness 
in and of ourselves, and you, O God, are infinitely wise. So we say together, we trust your word. And we ask you to transform our minds and our lives according to it, knowing that in a passage like this that goes so counter to the way our culture thinks today, and honestly, God, so counter to the way we think today, we pray that you would give us humble hearts and minds to understand what this passage says, to receive your word, and to live according to it, according to your rightly offensive, good and timeless word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, and again, I mainly wanna take just these last few minutes to set the stage for next week. But I want us to think together about this idea that the Bible is outdated when we read passages like this, and don't you just kind of think, are you serious? Like, that seems very antiquated. And does that really have application for us today? And surely humanity has progressed over 2,000 years. And you start to think, why are we reading and studying a book, and specifically a letter here that was written 2,000 years ago? In addition to some portions of the Bible, more like 3,000 years ago. So asking these questions is good. It brings us to two principles for reading the Bible that I want to encourage you to write down. Because these two principles will not just help us with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they will help you with every passage you read in the Bible. So here's the first principle, the principle of history. And what this principle says is that God has revealed biblical truth in specific historical and cultural contexts. That's kind of a loaded sentence, but what it simply means is that 1 Corinthians didn't just appear out of nowhere in history. Now, this was a real letter written by a real person named Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a real church with real people in a real city called Corinth in the first century. So there's a real and specific historical and cultural context into which this biblical truth was communicated. What that means is, in order to understand what the Bible is saying at any given time, we need to start by, as best as we possibly can, stepping into the historical and cultural context of the people to whom it was originally written, who originally read this or heard it. And as we do that, we need to ask two important questions. First, what are the timeless truths that God reveals in this text? Truths which never change over time. In other words, whenever we're reading, studying a passage in the Bible, we are looking for the truth that God is revealing that pertains to all people in all cultures at all times. And then we ask a second question. Are there any temporary applications of that truth, in, of those truths in this text, which can change over time? So are there things in a text, in a passage in the Bible, that are taking biblical truth and applying it to a particular culture at a particular time in a way that might be different in another culture at another time. And to be clear, not every text contains this. Many texts don't. Think about clear commands to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, flee idolatry, flee sexual immorality. Those are clear commands we see in the Bible in ways that don't change over time or across cultures. But in a text like this in 1 Corinthians 11, or I'll show you a similar example. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Paul writes there, in a different letter, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So let's ask those two questions here. What is the timeless truth here? God is clearly saying, in this passage that women at all times and in all cultures should adorn themselves with respect and modesty and self-control. Most importantly, with godliness and with good works. That's timeless truth from God that never changes. 
And part of how we know it's timeless is because God's word says the same thing at different points in different times and cultures across the Bible. There are other places in the Bible where we say, see these same truths. At the same time, this passage is a letter written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Paul to Timothy, who was pastoring a church in Ephesus. And he is saying that braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire in that context were communicating a lack of respect, a lack of modesty, and a lack of self-control. So that was a temporary application of that truth at that place and time in history. But this is why we don't have someone at the door today at any of our locations checking for any women with braided hair, saying, not here. Because braided hair in our context today does, in and of itself does not communicate lack of respect, lack of modesty, lack of self-control. So that's a temporary application of biblical truth, which means then we need to think today about how to dress in our culture in a way that communicates respect and modesty and self-control because that's the timeless truth in this text. Now the challenge is if we're not careful, we'll quickly label something temporary application that's actually timeless truth. Meaning we can quickly say, well, that was just for them back then and excuse ourselves from what God is telling all people in all times to do. Take, for example, God's command for a husband to lead his wife in Ephesians 5 or commands we've talked about to flee sexual immorality, including homosexual practice. People will say, well, that was just for that context in the first century. That doesn't apply to the 21st century. But part of the reason we know those are timeless truths from God about marriage and sexuality is because we see them over and over again in God's word across times and across cultures, which actually leads to the second principle I want to show you if we're going to rightly understand the Bible. So you have this principle of history where we ask these questions. What are the timeless truths God reveals in this text? Any temporary applications of those truths in this text? Knowing God has revealed biblical truth in specific historical and cultural context, then a second principle is the principle of harmony, which helps us realize that we need to interpret each scripture in light of all scripture. So no part of scripture stands alone. It all fits together in a unified whole. This goes back to where we started today, the internal consistency of the Bible. Yes, the Bible has over 40 human authors, but the Bible has one divine author, God, who inspires it all. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is God-breathed, and God does not contradict himself, which means we need to consider how different passages relate to each other. And specifically, whenever we see two passages that seem to contradict themselves, We need to look more closely at the context of each passage, like we just talked about, to ask, what is the timeless truth here that we know is consistent across both of these passages and across the entire Bible? And there's an example of that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And another verse that we're going to get to in a couple months in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let me show it to you. 1 Corinthians 11, 5. We just read, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So this is talking about a wife praying or prophesying and how to do that. But then we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 14 a few weeks from now, where we're going to read in verse 34, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. So at first glance, those passages seem to contradict each other, which leads some people to think, I can't trust the Bible. Or people who do trust the Bible are confused, maybe even concerned, especially when we realize that a lot of women speak in our worship gatherings in a lot of ways, including prominent ways on stage. So are we going contrary to what God is saying in his word? We're going to look at that more in 1 Corinthians 14 when we get to the context of that passage and what that is saying, along with 1 Corinthians chapter 11 next week. But all kinds of passages in the Bible, so it's not just 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, each scripture in light of all scripture, what does the whole Bible teach about men and women and worship? And we're going to see that, yes, we can absolutely trust the Bible. It doesn't contradict itself. And we're going to understand each scripture in light of all scripture. Now, 
All of this is important for how we understand the Bible, specifically for our time together next week in 1 Corinthians 11. So think about the passage I just read to you. We need to ask the question, what are the timeless truths in this passage in the Bible, and what are the temporary applications of those truths in that context? Because both seem to be at work there. Head coverings for women and men both seem to signify something in that culture. And so does long hair or short hair or shaved hair. At the same time, there seem to be timeless truths at work in that passage about the nature of God and man and woman that go all the way back to creation. What does the whole Bible teach about men and women and wives and husbands and leaders in the church? All of that comes to bear on how we understand a passage like we just read. So these are questions we're going to dive into next week in order to rightly understand this passage and in order to keep from misunderstanding it in all kinds of unhelpful ways. And in order to make sure we are applying the timeless truth of God from this text in our lives today. But as we close today, before we even get to next week, I need to ask you a fundamental question. When I say ask you, I mean every single person in this gathering, from the youngest to the oldest, whether you're first time in church or you've grown up in church. And I, I want to encourage you to let this question soak in in your mind and your heart. Don't just, it's not for the person next to you, in front of you, behind you. This is for you. Here's the question every one of us needs to answer first and foremost. Do you trust this book with your life? Or maybe one other way to put this. Do you trust the author of this book with your life? Because your answer to that question will affect how you view and respond to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But in a much, much bigger way, your life hinges now and for eternity around how you answer that question. I've mentioned that some of you are exploring Christianity. I've talked about the central story message of the Bible. Just to make sure it's clear, the central message of this book, that there is one true God who's created you and me and everything in this world, and he's created us to experience life in him and with him forever. The problem in our lives and the problem in this world is that we have rebelled against God. We have not trusted his word to us. You look back at the beginning of the Bible, the very first temptation to sin, Genesis chapter three, started with a question. And the question was, did God really say? God had said, eat from any tree in the garden except this one. And the first temptation was to doubt God's word. And not long after that, the first sin, act of rebellion, was to go against God's word. And that's not just the story of Adam and Eve. That's the story of you and me. Every single one of us has turned aside from God and his word to ourselves and our ways. As a result, of our sin, we are separated from God. And if we die in this state of separation from God, we will spend eternity separated from him in judgment due our sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves us and God has not left us alone in this state of separation. God has come to us in the person of Jesus who is at the center of this book. And Jesus has done what no one else could ever do, has ever done. He lived the life we could not live, a life of no sin. And then, even though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for the sins of anyone who would trust in him and his love for them. 
And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. And he says to anyone who trusts in him, you have eternal life with me. He's coming back one day and he's gonna restore all things to himself for those who have put their trust in his love. So if you've never put your trust in him with your life, I invite you to make this day that day. I urge you today to trust in God with your life, to trust Jesus, to save you from your sin, restore you to relationship with him. Trust his word. And when you do, now follow this. And for all who have, so if I could just encourage every single Christian Brother, sister, especially members of this church, can I just encourage you in two ways as we close? One, I want to encourage you to meditate on this book like your life depends on it, because it does. We've used this language before. I want to continue to use it so that it's ingrained into us. Meditate. Don't just read the Bible like you're checking off a box. Meditate on it. Soak in it. When you get up, before you go to bed, all throughout the day, can I just speak pastorally to many of you, in a sense, all of us who are Christians? We have more access to the Bible than ever before in history. YouVersion's a Bible app. You can download in a second. You can have half a billion chapters of the Bible in 500 languages at your fingertips. My followers of Jesus a thousand years ago never could have fathomed having the Bible in their pockets at all times. The problem is, at the same time, there's a lot of other things besides the Bible on our phones and our computers and our TVs in our bookshelves. If I could just speak pastorally to you, like most of you are spending far more time on these other things than you are in God's Word. I would venture to say almost all of you, all of us, include myself in this, like adults, most of you are spending far more time on Facebook, or reading or watching news, or following what this or that person is saying, listening to this podcast, or watching this video, or reading this book, or watching this show, than you are soaking in the Word of God. And you don't realize it, but it is killing your soul. And I don't say that to be overly dramatic. It's, it's true. It's deceiving your mind. It's dividing the church. It's destroying our witness in the world as we spend so much of our energy focused on temporary things in our culture and our country that we're losing our witness to the timeless word of God. And students, most of you have an impulse to check texts and posts and videos on your phone, but you have no such impulse to go to the Bible. And that is extremely dangerous. I just want to remind you, I want to remind all of us, including me, those things don't lead to life. This book leads to life. To life, like... In fact, just take it a step further, most of these things are actually designed to deceive and manipulate and control and conform you to a pattern of this world that goes against God's word that brings life. So I want to plead with you to either cut off some of those things or spend far less time on them and meditate on this book like your life depends on it because it does. I believe that's a word from God for us today. And then in a world where an increasing number of people don't know how good this word is, think all kinds of things about this word, share this book with others like their lives depend on it because they do. 
Parents, read and study this word with your kids like their lives depend on it, because they do. Stop wasting so much time on so much stuff in this world while ignoring spending time in this word with them. Don't just keep saying, well, I can't wait for children's student ministry to open back up. Don't forget, children's student ministry starts right there in your home every morning, every evening, all throughout the day when you walk and you ride in the car all the time. This is, this is what our kids need. It's what every teenager in this gathering needs. So are we faithfully giving it to them? And are we getting involved in kids' quest and rock and other things in our location to pass this word on to the next generation so that trend line doesn't stay the same? And not just in our homes or our churches, but there are people in your life that you will interact with this week who need this word, their lives for eternity hinge on hearing it from you and me. So we just pray today that God would help you to share, maybe just to share the central message of this book, the good news of Jesus, with one person this week. Let me, let me pray toward that end. Would you bow your heads with me? And you know, first and foremost, as we bow our heads, for anyone who's never said, I trust you, Jesus, with my life, let today be the day, even right now, as our heads are bowed and we're praying, would you just pray to God and say, God, I, I know I have turned aside from you and your word to myself and my ways, but today I am deciding to trust in you. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I trust him as Lord of my life. I urge you, put your trust in Jesus with your life today. And when you do, and for all who have, we just pray together, God, help us. We praise you for your word. We thank you for your word. So we pray you'd help us to live differently in this world, not to be caught up in everything else this world is calling us to. God, I feel so limited in this few minutes we have together right now, and we're about to scatter into a world where we get all kinds of other messages that pull us away from your word. God, would you please guard us by your word. God, I pray for this church. I pray for every single person within the sound of my voice right now. Please guard them with your word. Help them to prioritize your word. Help them to see its beauty and its value and its worth. Help us to know it and understand it rightly and to live according to it in our lives and to share it. God, we pray that this week, you would open opportunities for us to share the central message of your word with somebody else. And God, we pray that you'd bring others to supernatural life change this week through your word, through our lips. God, please, may it be so. As we come together every week around your word, help us to bring others with us to hear your word and come to know life in you. God, we pray all of these things as people united around your word. In Jesus' name, amen.